Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for some time spent in your word and in worship. And I pray, Lord, as we open up um, these few verses that have a lot of depth and meaning to them, um, and we explore what it looks like to, to be in a world filled with different ideas, um, I pray, Lord, that you'll give us and equip us uh, with the tools to help defend the faith with a way of love and compassion that would bring people to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So after last week, and you see this end of at chapter, or at verse 17, there's an amen. And then there's a charge. So you have the greeting that's given from verse 1 to verse 17 is a greeting, a warning, kind of a reminder. It's that opening part of the letter. And then you have this charge. Like this is the point of what you do as a church, especially here in Ephesus that Paul is writing to Timothy. And then the rest of the chapters start talking about it. it says, first of all, then I urge you. And so he, the rest from, chap, from, from this point forward, after chapter 1, he's giving us the, the tools. He's unpacking what it looks like to be a church that can defend the faith. That there are certain things that churches should do. There are certain things that churches and gatherings should have in them. And, but the point is what we're going to talk about today. The point of having that charge is that we defend the truth. We defend the faith. And so we're going to read verse 18 to 20, three verses, kind of unpack a bit of a world religions discussion, and then we'll go back to the charge, okay? Just letting you know what's coming. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, to set this up, we see that there's something going on in this church. And so Paul is giving some direction for two individuals. So, and I, I have made it a policy over the course of ministry to not name names on the stage for fear of offending people or fear of offending if you have read or been blessed by a book or been blessed by somebody that you've seen on TV, then I think God can use false teachers to some extent um, to help you come to faith. And so, um, but it, privately, if you want to ask me, should I listen to these authors? Should I read these books? Should I, I'll give you concern. I'll show that to you. I don't feel that because we're so inundated with stuff from outside, I don't know that I need to put pictures up of people that are on TV that you should never listen to. I don't think that's wise. I will do that in private. If you're reading a book, if you're someone you're not sure of, and I'll, and I'll let you know some ones I've read that have gone off the deep end over the years, but I still have their books on my shelf. So I'll, I'll, I'll give those to you. Like if you come to me and say, hey, what about this person? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'll give you some hints as we go along to look for. These are the, the warning signs. But I've known lots of people that when they've told me they've read a book or watched somebody on TV and they've been blessed by it, I've, the hair on the back of my neck, even though I have much hair on my head, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know. But I'm seeing the proof. Um, we get into the nuance of, of theology and we get into some things. I'm scared about some things that come out in books and in Christian bookstores and on TV, and but then I don't want to rob people. God can use. We saw, we see it throughout the Gospels. God's using people that don't even know Him. And so, anyway, that's my disclaimer. 
as we go through this, because what people tend to do, you think when I say Hymenaeus and Alexander, you start going, what about this one and this one and this one? I wonder if I should be. Come talk to me, and we'll figure it out. Or to Cole, or to Raina, or anybody around, any of the elders, they'll give you some caution on some stuff. Um, but I'm not going to put video clips of people that you should not be listening to. I could, but I'm not going to. So he tells my child in accordance with prophecies. Now, this is something we don't know about, and I would. this is one of those questions that I have. I want to know. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So not only is Timothy this student of Paul and has gone on ministry trips and journeys with him, and he's learned and he's grown his maturity in a very quick way, identified that there were prophecies about him, that he was going to be a, a major leader of, of the men and women of God. I would love, like, just in that nuance, and of course the prophecies, could you tell me about those? I'd like to know what those are, God. That'd be a really cool way to connect all this and tie it. We don't get that. We don't get that. So that's part of the mystery that we kind of see in the scriptures, that there's clearly a call on Timothy's life that goes beyond just being Paul's student. That there was prophetic utterances, prophetic teaching, that he was going to be a leader. And so this is a continuation of that. So Paul's reminding him and encouraging him. Remember the prophecies that were spoken about you. These things are true. That you warfare, holding faith with a good conscience. Now, Paul loves to use military terms and sports analogies throughout, but there's also a seriousness to what we're discussing that he sees the fight of the gospel and the defending of the truth like preparing for war, preparing for warfare. It's serious business. There are times when, yeah, we can contemplate things. We call them two second or third tier theological things that we can kind of, you know, I don't know about that. Should you not? If Is this stage holy ground? Should I take my shoes off? You know, there's things that we can do that are just great to discuss. They're fun to dig into and to think about and contemplate what God's teaching us and ask the Spirit to guide us. But there's some things, there's no talking, there's no debate, there's no, this is the truth. And so Paul is trying to encourage him to wage the good warfare, hold fast to your faith, that there's a conflict coming. And then he names some names. By rejecting this, some have lost their faith, have shipwrecked their faith, they've ruined their testimony. Their legacy is now seen as defunct. And he names two names. So remember, this letter is being read to this whole church. Were those guys sitting in the building still? I don't know. I don't know. This would be very this this would be like if we had someone in our church teaching a small group, a Sunday school, something, and in the course of that coursework or that class, it comes out that that person is teaching something that goes completely against Jesus. You know, you're in your Sunday school class and it comes along and someone asks a question about, well, Mike mentioned that the communion was the central core, it's one of the core things we do, and that if we don't have a faith in the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then we don't have Jesus. Is that really true? And then your Sunday school teacher says, well, you no, know, the cross is a great story, but I don't really believe that he, he rose from the dead. But, oh, yeah, it is. And then it comes out of that Sunday school class, 
And it comes to the leaders of the church, and the leaders of the church go meet with this Sunday school teacher. It would probably just be me or Raina or somebody. Hey, you said this because we all know that on this stage I've said things that people have taken the wrong way or I've just been dumb. Right? And so what we do in a loving church is say, Hey, I heard this come out of your mouth. Is that what you really meant? No. I, can, I, I can't count on my hands how many times somebody here after a service has said, Hey, you said this. Is that what you meant? No, that is not what I meant. Well, that's what I heard. Oh, boy. Okay, i got to fix that next week. That's happened. So that's how we have a loving... But in that conversation with this leader, we would say, Well, no, I don't believe in that. If this leader says, I don't believe in the resurrection, I just kind of think it's a great story, and I just play along, but I'm not here for that all that Jesus stuff. And then we start going, Well, how did you... I don't think it'd be that bad, but comes out and says, no, Jesus isn't, he's not alive. He died. He's dead. Great teacher. Then we would have to start going, okay, well, I think maybe you shouldn't be the Sunday school teacher. We're going to talk to this class. We're going to, we need to work on this. Like, let's talk more. Why do you think that? We're not just going to go, oh my gosh, how dare you? And we're not, we're going to have a conversation. But if it gets to the point where there's division in the church, there's something, then we might have to say, hey, you're no longer teaching Sunday school. That would be similar to this going on here. Now, is that person going to be thrown out of the church? Only if they start throwing things and make something violent happen, we have to trespass them. So is Hymenaeus and Alexander sitting in the congregation when this is happening? Very likely. Very likely. And so Paul is saying, I've turned them over to Satan. That's some pretty harsh words, isn't it? So what he's saying is, because in this letter... Hymenaeus and Alexander, it's risen to the level where Paul doubts that they have a faith in Christ. They're not really believers. So turning them over to Satan, he's done with him. It doesn't mean that they're going to burn in hell because they had a thought that might be outside the mainstream of Christianity, or they're confused, or they're just processing something. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they aren't believers. That these guys in the church rose up in leadership, and they aren't believers. So we're going to turn them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. They were denying the resurrection, denying the gospel, denying the cross, denying God. Blasphemy is the only unforgivable sin, which means, no, God didn't do it. No, I don't need God in my life. No, I don't need these things. No. So it's not just, like when you read it, don't read, that he says they're going to burn in hell. He's saying, I turn them over, they're not believers. We've, I've talked about this multiple times here at the church to, from this stage. That when someone comes to my office and they're asking questions, they're talking, and I can quickly determine that this person doesn't really have a faith, then I'm, I'm not going to talk about the nuances of theology. I'm going to start over here just about Jesus. You can't get into the second, third tier questions of faith when you don't have a faith. You don't see the scriptures right. And so that's what Paul's saying here. He's deflecting this over and saying, hey, these guys aren't believers. I've turned them over to Satan with the hope that they'll become believers. We see that in 1 Corinthians as well. He doesn't just throw people away. He says, we turn them over to Satan. We, let, we don't treat them as part of the family of knowledge. We treat them as outsiders, and we need to love them. This is an act of love. Okay? All right. A charge entrusted 
Continuing the process. This is a command. You're commanded to remember the past, your mentors, the visions that were spoken over you as a child, whatever's going on, and then he gives them a command and says, remember. This command I give you, remember where you've come from. So this would be like you and I, remember what you know. When some new thought comes in your head or it's on TV or you read some book, you're like, ah, I don't want them thinking maybe. Well, if something causes you to doubt your entire past, your faith, everything that you've known, be careful. Be careful. Don't forget where you come from. Don't forget what happened. Don't forget what God's done in your life. Don't forget, don't forget those things. And you won't be so easily swayed by stuff that comes your way. On. It's serious. It's not a game. There's, there's people's lives, eternities are on the line. And by rejecting this, um, these guys have proven they didn't really know God. They're speaking false things. And, and, and like, I want you to know this is different than you and your friends saying, I read this scripture today. I don't know about that. I don't know. What did God mean by that? I don't understand this. That's perfectly okay. That's part of the journey of faith. That's why we're here. But when you come into a room or you come to people and go, you know, I just, I really, I just can't wrap my head around God coming to us and dying for us. I wouldn't do that for anybody, so why would God do that for me? This stuff is all a joke. That's when you get scared. That's when you start, right? But if you have questions, like, have your questions. You have no idea the questions that I have in my mind over what God's doing, what's happening, and you watch the news and what's going on in people's lives. And I've spent enough time in the last decade in hospital rooms and people's homes and people are dying and people are in accidents and things are happening that I've had plenty of questions of, what are you doing, God? What is going on? But I don't reject him. I don't push him away. Do I get mad at him? Yeah, I do. Do I get confused, frustrated? Yes, I do. But I don't walk away from my faith. And that's what Paul's addressing here. These two men have walked away from everything. And he would say, they don't really believe. So in the um, I want to do this. Now again, this is the caveat. This is a very surface level brief walk through a few of the main religions of the world. I feel you should be equipped to understand a few things. This is not exhaustive. If you have family and friends in your life that grew up Hindu or Muslim, um, I am not a complete expert, and this is very surface level, but I want you to see a conclusion at the end, that all we have to do is keep the focus on Jesus to have conversations with people around us. Contrary to what the world would try to tell you, especially if you watch conservative um, media here in the United States. Um, you will get this kind of thing like faith is dying, faith is dying, no one believes anymore. The secular elites from Europe and America are driving religion out of the world. Um, that's all false. There's actually more people on the planet that have a faith um, today than did 100 years ago. Faith is actually increasing around the world. It just happens to not be Christianity. 
Um, but people have faith in religion is on the rise. Um, every study that we have seen shows that around the world, people are leaning more and more into religion and less and less away from this secular atheism that exists in Europe and is kind of sweeping through the United States. It's just not true. Um, and we see the, the fissures and the cracks in places, uh, especially in Europe, we're seeing it. We see it a little bit here in the United States where you have massive immigration from Muslim countries into uh, Western European nations, especially France. And you, France is the one you can probably read the most about, as it as migrants came into France, they really thought that if we just took care of all their needs and their food and their shelter and their education, that they would become great little secular parts of society. And what they're finding is that is not true at all. That as they survey students, especially in the elementary and middle school age, that they are more, more focused on faith and more fundamental in their faith than they ever thought. And the French are throwing their hands up going, what, what are we doing? We gave them food and free education and free housing. Shouldn't they just be walking away from their religion and being secular like the rest of us? They're seen all over the Nordic countries. As people are coming in of faith, they're coming into these nations and they don't know what to do because they're like, well, we thought if we just took care of their needs, then they would stop all this religious stuff. And it's not happening. Around the planet, people are becoming more and more religious. And so we need to prepare for what we're seeing Paul give Timothy. You need to be prepared to have those conversations with people. Because as we interact with people in the world and people in our community, do you have, are you equipped to have those conversations? So I just wanted to give you a real brief overview of some world religions. Um, Islam is the second largest religion in the world. It's rapidly on the rise. I just want to give you some basics. Islam means submission. The entire Muslim faith, uh, when you say Islam, Islam is the faith and a Muslim is someone who follows the faith. Like we have Christianity and Christian. So sometimes you'll see in the news and in articles, you'll see this, in, this interchange. Well, he's a Muslim. Well, he's a follower of Islam. Um, it, it just means submission, and a Muslim is one who submits. And the idea is that you're going to submit to Allah. The will of Allah, you're going to submit to God in the Arabic form. It's really a religion of submission. Uh, the Quran, that's how it's properly spelled. We Americanize it and put a K everywhere. Um, it's pronounced Quran, but we say Quran. Um, it has the unifying language of, of Islam is Arabic. So when you, I have a translation, I have a, a Arabic to English translation of the Quran. If you see people talking in your circles about Islam, if they say, well, I, I tend to lean this way, I'm a Muslim, then if they don't read Arabic, they're not really there yet. It is required of everybody who claims a faith in Islam that they would learn Arabic and they would read the Quran in Arabic. To read it in English is for children converts that aren't native speakers. If you don't learn the Arabic language, then you will never be fully accepted into the faith. And so you have to learn Arabic. And so if you have people that say like, hey, I'm, you know, like the nation of Islam here in the United States is kind of a subset. They don't have that requirement. And so if you take people from the nation of Islam and then you interact with some, some Shiite Muslims from the Middle East, they don't get along very well. This is always one of the funny things of like the coexist bumper sticker. Um, they don't coexist. There is no coexisting. And then you have the Shiite and the, the Sunni Muslims. So you have, you have an internal fight 
over the descendants of Abraham. And so you have this internal fight of very, being very strict with Sharia law, which we see in Afghanistan. Um, we see in parts of Iraq and growing, but then you have Sunni Muslims in Saudi Arabia, and there's differences of even that. So you have those fights happening in Islam. Okay? Um, standard regulation of faith, there's no room for interpretation. You must follow the five pillars of Islam. Um, these are the five tenets of faith in Islam. Um, one is that you make a profession of faith publicly, and you say the phrase, there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's a public phrase that must be said. Um, a Muslim's got to pray five times a day facing Mecca. So it's not just here. You hear, well, they have to pray facing east. Well, as long as they're west of Mecca. But if you go to Japan, you're going to pray facing west. So if you see someone walking around campus and has kind of a, a prayer carpet um, stuck in their backpack because they're going to go, they're going to pray while they're on campus, then oftentimes there's a compass sewn into the corner so they can find the right direction to the they should be praying. Uh, you give alms to the poor, you take care of poor people. A Muslim must fast during the daylight hours in the month of Ramadan, so it's a daylight fast. So when the sun comes up, you stop eating. When the sun goes down, you continue eating. It's not just a fast. It's also massively community building within the family. Where So that month is very sacred. So if we have any Muslim people in our community and you're inviting them over for dinner uh, during the month of Ramadan, or you're trying to interact and have build relationship with, just know that you better prepare for a party if you invite them over during the month of Ramadan because they don't eat during the day. And so it's really like there's family meals every evening during that month. So think Thanksgiving for 30 days straight every night during the month of Ramadan. And so you get up, have a breakfast, you contemplate God during the day, and then you have a giant feast. So it's not like sometimes you, know, you fast a meal and then you don't just go pig out. It's very much a celebration every night. Um, and then a holy visit to Mecca must be undertaken by every Muslim if they can afford it someday in their lifetime. Um, Mecca is a place where there was a meteorite. This is what it looks like when people visit Mecca. The central concrete box, when you visit Mecca, you do this circular pattern, and you're walking around and walking around, and so you can finally get to the place where, ah, oh, I didn't put the picture in there. Um, there's a black meteorite that's in the corner of this square box of concrete, and you're supposed to get to it and touch it. Um, they believe this holy rock fell from the sky, and it's a holy center for for Muslims to go, and so if you're supposed to go to this spot once in your lifetime, you're to give up vacations, give up financial gain to make this trek to a holy site. Um, the Quran itself, the book itself, is considered a holy book. Uh, they treat it very much like we would treat the American flag here in the United States, where if an American flag touches the ground or it gets old and tattered, you're supposed to have a special ceremony. You take it to the VFW or the American Legion. They usually take care of them. They'll do a special ceremony where you burn the ashes and bury them. It's very, everybody that was in Boy Scouts and kind of knows this. Um, that's how they would treat the Quran. So a few years ago when that pastor in, it was probably about 10 years ago, he was in Florida or maybe southern Georgia, and he had a Quran burning party, and it caused lots of rioting over the Middle East. It wasn't just a, hey, we don't like your book, this is dumb. It actually was seen as, like there were severe death threats about him because that's a holy book. We, like if my book is getting pretty tattered and I love this thing, um, but if my Bible, if I stop using this or I can't find it, I just go get another one off my shelf or I break out my phone. 
Um, if I stood up here and I started ripping pages out, which I will never do, if I started ripping pages out, you would be angry, like, what are you doing? But it wouldn't be seen as an affront to God. It'd be like, that's offensive. What are you doing? You're an idiot. Don't do that. I'd probably get a little stronger talking to you by people in this church. But if it was a Quran and I was a Muslim imam, then that would, that would be grounds for killing me, like on the spot. So just know that. If you have a Quran, you have friends around, if you visit somebody who's a Muslim, they're talking about it, and they're just like tossing the Quran around, like sometimes we toss our Bibles in the chairs, um, they're probably not that serious because you wouldn't do that. Okay? Hinduism. Um, lots of gods, 150,000 plus. The, Hindu, the reason I want to talk about this, I've mentioned it before, but the Hindu pantheon of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, you have these gods that they're kind of the main ones. But I wanted to mostly focus on the Dharma and Karma thing. People throw around the word karma all the time as Christians. It's not a good practice. Um, you should probably, we should probably have more of a fire and brimstone justice kind of language as Christians and say, well, they got what they deserved. That's probably how, if we're following theology properly. But when you throw around karma and dharma, um, it's, a, it's part of the cycle of reincarnation in Hindu faith. And so you have four levels, four noble levels. There's a fifth that's the below. They're, they're the Dalits, the untouchables. These people, if, if a Dalit um, touches someone of a higher level, they could be killed on the spot. Um, women are seen as very low on all of the caste system level in Hinduism. That's why in the last several years, it's, it's only because of Christian influence in the universities that you've started to see news reports of people being raped on trains in, in India. Before, if a woman was raped on a train or something happened, that's just part of what happens. That's just the culture. Women are less than men. So that's just, it is what it is. And as some ministries that I, I know of two through Campus Crusade for Christ that are in, trying to have influence in the university system to try to, from a top-down level, bring in some social justice kind of things and some using the Bible to show of e things of equal dignity and equal respect, that you're starting to see more reports of this. But basically, if you're at one level and someone's a level above you, they can do whatever they want to you. And the way that you get to a higher level so that you're not treated as less than human is that you do whatever level you live in, which is your dharma. Dharma is your level in society, and how you function as good in that level of society is the karma that sticks to your soul. So karma is what sticks to your soul as you fulfill your dharma. So, as a dad, as a husband, and as a father, if I treat my children well, if I um, treat my wife well, and I'm not heavy-handed with them, and I, then I will have good karma sticking to my soul, and then when I die and I'm reincarnated, I might get to go up a level. From teacher, I mean, technically I'd be at the highest level as a pastor, but to say I'm a soldier, you have the soldier level, and then I'm a good soldier, I do my duty, I'm not a coward, I fight the good fight, and I take care of my family, I take care of my kids, then when I die, I could reincarnate as a Brahmin, which is like the, the religious elite. But then if I'm a religious elite up here, and I'm not good with the word, I'm not good with teaching, I'm not good with my family, then bad karma sticks to my soul. The next time I die, I drop down a level. And so this is an entire eternity, is this up-down level. So if you're talking to people who are of Hindu faith, and you start talking about Jesus, and he died for our sin, and there is only, there's no reincarnation. There is an eternity with him forever. It's going to be completely foreign to them. The idea that you would say that grace is for me, 
that his act on the cross, he died for me. And I'm given grace because I put my faith and I believe in him. That'll be completely what? You need to work out your salvation. You need to be a good person. You need to do these things. Very works-based. Go up a higher level. With, be very foreign to a Hindu. When you see Buddhism, Buddhism is a rejection of Hinduism. Buddhism was a rebellious rejection of Hinduism. The, one of the tenets of Buddhism is you, if you follow the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and you do these things well, then you get to break the cycle of rebirth and you get to achieve nirvana. Buddhism was a rejection and a rebellion against Hinduism, saying, I, I can break these chains of, of reincarnation. If I live a good life, I follow the Four Noble Truths, and then I, I can break the chains. And so if you're talking to a Buddhist about heaven and eternity, they, they, they're almost there, but nirvana is a, a, a state of nothingness. And when we talk about heaven, and we talk about a new earth, and we talk about living a life that's going to come against a little bit, the Buddhists are a little closer to that, an understanding of the gospel through eternity, more so than a Hindu. Okay? Two others real fast. Confucius, he believed the troubles of society could be fixed if you would submit to political order. If you would just follow politics and follow society and follow the order, you know, all those phrases Confucius say, there are these rules. If you follow the rules, then everything just works out nicely. This one is pretty easy um, here in the United States because we're a bunch of rebels and we broke away from our English overlords. And so if you talk to someone who's from China, um, some parts of Southeast Asia who has a, a real stick in Confucius, Confucianism has kind of gone away uh, for the most part um, because those rules have been replaced by the rules of government instead of the rules of right living. But um, And then you have Taoism, it's pronounced with a D. It's the opposite on um, nothingness, just getting rid of things. It's Taoism is you follow your gut. Just live your life. You be you. You do you. Um, in Taoism, the yin and the yang, it is not yin-yang. People would say that. It's not accurate. And anytime you see the yin and the yang, it's supposed to be black and red. Anytime you see it black and white, that's just a product of printing and publishing. Because red was a hard, we didn't have color printing for a long time. We had black and white, it was pretty easy, so you just made it black and white. So anytime you see someone who says they're following Confucian or they like this yin and yang or they get the tattoo or whatever, I've made fun of a few people over the years that have the yin and the yang tattoo um, on their arm or their back or their leg or something, I go, hey, you know that's supposed to be red, right? I go, what? Yeah, that's not accurate. Like anybody from China that looks at that is going to laugh at you as a punk because it's supposed to be red. You're just a product of westernization of a symbol. What? And then I just make fun. I used to make fun of girls that would get like a Japanese symbol on the, the back of their neck. They have a ponytail and I would say, you know, I took a class once and that actually means that you're an idiot. What? No, this is the symbol for love. No, it's not. That's a symbol for dumb. No, like I took it. And they would just believe me and they'd go run back and I was just messing with them. But that was just fun for me. The yin and yang is the focus of Taoism. i get to this in a minute. Um, Mormonism has a little bit of yin and yang in it. Um, 
in Mormonism, and I'm not an expert in Mormonism. Some of you may be more than me. Um, there's a belief in deep into the church. Most people that are just part of the church and don't really dig in deep, there's a belief that Jesus and Satan are brothers, and they're essentially the yin and the yang of faith. So you have evil, like think Star Wars, the force and the dark side. Like that's very yin and yang. That's very, okay. So why do we say, oh, there's a book you can read if you want. It's called The Tao of Pooh. Winnie the Pooh explains Taoism pretty fantastically, where when there was a rumble in his tummy, he ate. When he was tired, he took a nap. That's the tenets of Taoism. Just follow your nature. We're all mammals. Just kind of live like that. Just don't, don't worry about rules. Don't worry about just kind of do whatever feels good and right at the time. Um, that's a whole lot of what's going on in society today. So I bring all this up on this great chart. One, I want you to be able to bridge some gaps with some people. But I also want you as Christians to not feel like you have to know everything. There's only one thing that you really need to focus on when you're having these conversations. You need to be filled with grace and mercy. You need to be filled with relationship building. And you need to not just push people away and go, well, you know, if you believe in that yin and yang stuff, you're just asking for really hot eternity. Don't do that. You're trying to use the relationships you have to build. But there will come a time in that relationship that you have to stand on the truth. And that's what Timothy is being told by Paul. You have to be ready for warfare. So to know the culture, know what's around you is wise. It's very wise. When you see things shifting, you see things happening, it's very wise to notice those things. But you don't, you don't come into that with a fight and try to refute every little thing that someone believes in their faith. You're never going to win that argument. Sit down and, and someone says, well, have you read the Quran? No, I don't need to. This is the one question we need to focus on. It's at the top. Who do you believe Jesus is? As traditional since 300, so I put the Nicene Creeds there, for 200, from, since 200 to 300 AD, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. That's, that's the key. That's the key for our conversations with other people. You just, who do you believe Jesus is? And you see the chart on the left, uh, divine being, he's a man, he's a man, he's a man, man or half man, God, the Hinduism says all kinds of stuff, man and archangel, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus ever had a body, that he was an arch, he's the archangel Michael, that he was a spirit being. So a Jehovah's Witness does not believe that Jesus ever had a body. That goes against the... Immaculate conception, it goes against the virgin birth, it goes against everything. Uh, Mormons believe he was a man, a man who was given God-like qualities. He, was, he became a god. And so then even then the, the Mormon faith, you know, you will become the god of your own planet kind of stuff, the language that's in the Mormon faith. You don't have the chart memorized, and you don't have to have it all specific and, and know it in this perfect way. Here's the truth. Do you believe... That Jesus is fully man and fully God. You don't have to know every little thing. All you got to know is what the Word tells us in 1 John. John, after his exile on Patmos, goes back to the church in Ephesus. So this is still an issue that is around in the church that Timothy is leading. He tells us this is the dividing line. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. That's the dividing line. 
Do you believe that Jesus is God in flesh who came to save us from our sin? No, I don't. Then we are not on the same page. And when you hear that, no, I don't, then you know what you have to do. This isn't an argument over nuanced things in Christianity. Do we believe this? Do we believe that? This is the big picture. I don't believe in the cross. I don't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. I don't believe he's the Son of God in flesh. We've got to start from the beginning. You have to know this. So when you're having that conversation with coworkers and family and friends, and someone says, hey, you know, I read this book. The, what was the ones, there was one called The Secret going around for a while, and there was one, another one. and I'm, I didn't read it, so I can't tell you if it's good or bad. But there's always like some books that are coming around that flow through our culture, and, and everybody starts asking questions about, what do you think about this? What about that? What about this? Go back to the central question. Do you believe Jesus is God in flesh? Well, yeah, I believe that. Okay. Let's talk about the book. What do you think that's helpful? Do you think that's wise? Do you think that's... I saw this guy on TV the other day and he said this. Well, that's kind of dumb. I don't... I'm listening to this pastor. I'm watching him on TV. I'm reading this pastor's books. I'm reading... You know, I'm going to Priscilla Shire's thing. I'm going to the simulcast. And she said this. And I'm confused by it. Well, I know... She believes in this. I know she believes in that. So let's discuss that. Or, oh man, she just denied the divinity of Christ. We should probably stop that simulcast halfway through and say we're done. That's not going to happen. It's Priscilla Shire. So I'm, that was just a, an analogy. That's the linchpin. Who do you say Jesus is? It's preparing for war. Not fighting. Not That's not what I'm getting at. But if we're going to prepare for war and wage a good war, we hold to our faith, we hold to our conviction, and we prepare. We prepare. I'll tell you one author that, for me, uh, was very influential. Um, Rob Bell was a pastor in Michigan, and he led a church. It was called Mars Hill. And he came out um, with a whole series of videos. Some of you probably sat through in in Sunday school, the, the NUMA videos, which means the breath of God. This guy taught the Bible like I'd never heard before. He planted a church in Michigan, and his great big sermon series that he started his church with as he preached verse by verse through Leviticus. That is not typically what you start a church with. Grounded, grounded in teaching the Bible. I was very influenced by him in a desire to understand the culture and to dig into the Word and not just look at it at surface level. Very instrumental in my faith. I have three of his four books on my bookshelf still with all my notes and highlights and dog ears and great stuff. And about 10 years into his ministry, he comes out with a book called Love Wins and he denies hell, becomes a universalist, that everyone goes to heaven. Well, he's no longer pastoring his church because he left, but I know somebody was on staff there. He was told to leave. He's then wrote written some other books. He's been on tour with some people. He still has some influence, but he's way off the deep end. Now, I didn't throw away his books because they're still influential on me. I still respect a lot of what was in the first three books. 
but I can't point anybody to him anymore. If I point people to Rob Bell, it's like, hey, here's this great book, but we have to read this together. Just like if someone comes to me and says, hey, I'd really like to dig into the Quran, we're going to read it together. I'm not going to just hand you a copy and say, you go for that. There's a whole book of Christian mystical literature called the Apocrypha that is strange. Ancient Christian writings, strange. I'm not going to hand you a copy of that and say, yeah, go have fun. We're going to read it together and have discussion and say, hey, you know, this, you know, this isn't real. This isn't. This is just some writings out there. That's what we're going to do. So don't hold so tight to the people. Just because they've had influence in your life doesn't mean you should throw away the influence. But when you recognize that they've lost it, they've gone off the deep end, this isn't okay, then you have to be ready to say, nope. There's some, I've got books on my shelf, well, they're digital. I have books in my device that were written by authors that, there's one by Tulian, I can't say his last name. He's the grandson of Billy Graham. He wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing is Everything. And he tried, this book is brilliant in trying to drive home the point that you don't earn your salvation. This is not, he captures you by grace, by faith. You don't add anything to it. You don't add the rules. You don't add, it's a brilliant book. Came out a few years ago that he was having multiple affairs on his wife. So he's no longer in ministry at that church. He took over the one in Coral Springs, Florida. The it's a big church or Gables. It was a it was on, the guy was on TV. I forget his name. Somebody somebody will remember his name. Um, he took over that church, had a massive influence in the country and around the world, and then he throws it all away. Well, then it was like two years later, and he's trying to get back on the circuit. And he's like, yeah, you know, God forgave me, and I have a new wife. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm all about grace and forgiveness. But at some point, you got to give more details on this. Like, we need to address this issue. So for right now, I can't suggest any of his books. That old one was great. I still use that phrase all the time. That's just within the bounds of Christianity. You go outside Christianity. There's all kinds of people saying things. Are you prepared for that conversation? Paul is giving the charge to Timothy, and he's telling the whole church in Ephesus, are you ready for war? Are you ready for this? Are you trained up for this? If we just took a group of 18 to 22-year-old men and didn't put them through basic training, we handed them a rifle and then dumped them off in the woods and said, hey, there's bad guys over there. How terrible would that be? They need training. Or a football team. You walk up, it's the night before the homecoming game, you say, hey, we just, we just need 22 guys. 11 to play defense, 11 to play offense, let's go. It would be pretty terrible. You only need five people to have a basketball team, maybe six if you want to have somebody have some rest, and just go grab some random people. No training, no workouts, no nothing. We would expect them to fail. And so Paul is addressing Timothy, and he's addressing this whole church. Are you ready for this war? Are you ready for the war of truth? Are you ready for this? If you can spot some things in the culture that are different, that are changing, that are, diff- that are just kind of odd, then you know where you need to stand. And then you come in with the truth. Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe he's God in flesh? Yes. All right, we're on the same team. But I don't know about this, this, this. Well, neither do I. Neither do I. We could, let's, let's have coffee and talk. 
But you say, I know I don't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, then you start talking about sin and temptation and life and purpose and eternity, and you share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The only way, we see what, he, what Paul has told Timothy, the way to prepare for this war is to remember your past, remember the testimony, remember the prayers, remember all the times you've served, all the ways you've seen God move, and then you need to be students of the Word. Sometimes you just bri- you, you briefly go through, you read the Bible in a year through a Bible reading plan, and it's, it's not surface level, but it's pretty quick. And in other times, you dig in deep into one book of the Bible. Can you imagine if you spent two years studying the Gospel of Matthew? Just two years hanging out in the Gospel. How, more, how rich would that be? Two years in Genesis. The story of the Old Testament of people coming to faith and how God... Oh, that'd be great. So don't, don't pick one or the other. Do a little bit of both. I'm doing this Bible reading plan and... I went through a year. Next year, I'm going, to, I'm going to do two books of the Bible, whole year. Slow, methodical, journal, pray. And then, whoa, that was, that was time-consuming. I need a break. I'm doing three months of just some random stuff in the Bible app. And then do that too. Are you prepared for war? And this isn't, please, don't hear me overemphasizing the analogy. I don't mean that you go have a verbal fight with people that believe difference in you. It's not what I'm asking. That might come, but it's about you building a relationship. It's you building a connection and then taking that connection to a place where you can have those conversations. And in a world that's becoming more faith-based, we're the ones that are going to have to make that dividing line of pointing to Jesus other than someplace else. It's us. We have that charge on us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for some time together in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to...